Hello and welcome to the Horizon Church podcast. We exist to see lives transformed through Jesus and are located in the heart of Surrey, BC, Canada. To find out more, visit us at horizonchurch.ca. We hope this message blesses and inspires you. If I don't know you, my name's Daniel, and uh, we've jumped into week two of a series that we'll be doing throughout uh, our summer called The Seven Churches of Revelation. Now, before you grab your bag, act like you have a phone call, and just sneak to the back and head out because you're like, I'm good. I don't need a series on that. Uh, I've, been with, I, I've been in that place before. When it comes to the book of Revelation, Pastor Craig, and if you missed it, I'd highly encourage taking some time to go back and watch it because it really sets the tone and the why for this series that we're going to be going into. But Revelation is a book that is highly avoided due to its genre or style of writing, right? If you've ever read it, you've probably been really confused. You've had more questions than you did going into it and possibly caused a little bit of fear. When organizations kind of teach and try and use it, it's been used to manipulate. Uh, This leads to it being highly divisive, at times unhelpful or distracting, and at worst, really hurtful. If people want to use it as a tool or a weapon against other people, and the temptation that I've had is, Lord, if that's just what you're going to do at the end, it said somewhere in there that no one knows, so I don't need to worry about it. You'll do it, and I'll just focus on the Gospels, right? I'll just study the Old Testament or walk through that. Uh, But Daryl Johnson in his book, um, Discipleship on the Edge, and if I could give, there's kind of two books that we're drawing from this morning. One around Revelation. If you, like me, have been like, ah, that's not where I choose to, you know, if I need, got like one Saturday morning without kids or without any friends or stuff going on, and I'm going to, I just get an hour with the Lord, I don't know how many are like, yes, Lord, we're just going to soak in Revelation today. (laughs) And if that's you, you're, you're smarter than me. But this book, Discipleship on the Edge, and if you want one book to read this summer, I think it would be really, really helpful. I can't remember a book that's more opened this book of the Bible up to me than Daryl's work on Discipleship on the Edge. Uh, Really, really helpful. He says this, no other book of the Bible, why is it so important? He would argue it's one of the most important for the church, the most important books for the church today, to which got my attention because that's the last thing I would ever have claimed. He said, no other book of the Bible presents the gospel as powerfully as the last book does. No other book of the Bible, in the face of all that threatens to undo us, proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ the way the last book does. No other book of the Bible helps us to see Jesus as he is right now, as clearly and compellingly as the last book that John wrote. And no other book in all of human literature crystallizes what it means to belong to and to follow Jesus in this world. You read the Gospels and it shows this picture of Jesus who was fully God and fully man and the life that he lived and he gives us this form and and you read the uh, Pauline epistles and the prison epistles and all the other books and we see kind of the church doctrine and different things but no other book clearly shows us a picture And I say clearly with a little bit of hesitation because the imagery can try to make it a little bit confusing at times. We're going to do our best to bring some clarity to that, but no other book paints a picture of Jesus as he is right now doing what he's doing right now for you and I. It's beautiful. And Revelation deals with the very heart of discipleship. For no other book of the Bible presents us with the fundamental issues of discipleship. And therefore the real issues of life for us who want to follow Jesus. 
as sharply. It is the fundamental issue that was facing those who uh, received the document, so the seven churches we're talking about, the issues that they were facing in the first century are the same that we face today. And that question is, who will I worship? Someone has said that we as human beings are incurably religious, meaning we cannot help but worship someone or something. The question is, who will it be? The powers and the pressures of today's age or that of Jesus? And Pastor Craig opened in Revelations 1 last week to paint this picture that John shows us. And the book Revelation simply means a kind of a scary word, apocalypse, which simply means the revealing or the unveiling of who? Of Jesus. Jesus reveals to John that it's meant to write a letter that would reveal to the church who Jesus is, to unveil, to show us not just what will be one day, very important, because we know what's ahead, we act accordingly now. But John also writes to reveal what is currently around us in the present, but is veiled very thinly, For those who have been born into Jesus, born again, we see a reality that's taking place not just one day, not just at the end of time, but today. And we see in Revelations 1, 12 to 20, Pastor Craig walked through, we're just going to bullet point the things that, how John sees Jesus. The first picture in Revelation, John gives us of Jesus. Why is this important? Because what is true about Jesus, for those who are in Christ, that is also true and what is accessible for us today. So when we sing songs about God being perfect, why is that important to you and I? Because now we can engage with a God who's perfect. We have perfect wisdom. When we talk about a God who is able, why, oh, that's great, he is able. What that means is what I have access to is a God who is infinitely able on my behalf. And so we see this picture of Jesus. It says our Jesus is in the middle. He's not far off. He is not the watchmaker that took history, designed it, twisted it up, and let it run its course. Now he's just sitting up in heaven waiting. We see Jesus. He's in the middle, walking amongst the churches. He is present. He is close. He is the great high priest and the king of kings. We see that he's the one who bridges the gap for us. He walks with his robe. John sees this picture of a robe, and the the girdle or the belt is no longer around his waist. If it was around his waist, it would mean that the high priest still has work to do. He's performing duties. But when the high priest wore it around his chest, that was a symbol that the work was complete. And the work was finished. So we see that our King Jesus, in the finished work of the cross, he is close and he rests in his finished works. Therefore, you and I, friends, can rest in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus. This is what John is telling us. I'm sorry, camera team, you're doing such a good job trying to keep me in the frame. Uh, But it's not going to get any better. All right? It says, his head and his hair are white like wool, like snow. We see that he is the ancient of days. He was at the beginning. He will be at the end. He has infinite wisdom. He's perfect, which means you and I in Christ have access to the ancient of days that doesn't just get novel about our day and age thinking, oh, the church has never had such a hard time. We've never experienced something like this. No, we have someone who's existed at the beginning and will exist at the end, sees time as one picture. It says, let me give you a little perspective, son. Let me let you know, it's been worse, it may get worse, but you're going to be all right. We have access to this. It says his feet were burnished like bronze. 
And for those who have read Daniel, you understand a little bit of this picture, but what it means, he is strong, he is unmovable, he is destroying any power or any force that would try and come against his kingdom. His feet, like we see in the, in the picture of Babylon, are not made of clay. They don't crumble under pressure. They are bronze that have been purified by fire, strong, stable. You can trust in King Jesus. Where he walks, he walks intentionally. He walks purposefully. He walks undefeated. He walks uncontended. This is the Jesus that you and I have access to. John is trying to paint us a picture And his voice is like the sounds of many water that simultaneously cancels out because of the volume. If you picture a waterfall, the the incredible pressure and the volume that you can't hear anything else. Drowns out any other voice while at the same time seems to bring this calm to our souls. Nothing else can. Mighty waters. And his face, since his eyes were like that, a purifying fire, not just pure in who himself, but what he looks at, he also brings purity too. And his face shining on us in all brilliance, blessing and encouraging us. It is this picture that Jesus unveils, apocalypse, revelation, he reveals to John. And it's in light of this that Jesus then says, I now have a message for my church. And we're going to get into the first message today. A couple things to keep in mind and part of the imagery is the seven stars talks about it. Pastor Craig did this last week. When it mentions the seven stars, it's referring to the seven angels of churches. Again, if you want to know what that means, get the book Discipleship on the Edge, read it. All right, don't have time today. Seven lampstands talks about the churches. When it says Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands, it's the churches. He's evaluating, he's walking, he's caring, he's protecting. And the seven churches, while they were geographical, real communities and bodies, they speak to all of us. In addressing these seven particular churches, Jesus is addressing all churches. It turns out that the seven churches of Asia embody every major issue with which the church has struggled with in every age and in every culture. That doesn't bode well for humanity, by the way, right? Like you think if we had this, churches, okay, we, we, we know what not to do. You think we'd get it. And so if you're here today and you feel like, Dan, I just, I, I took everything I got to get here and I'm never going to figure my life out. There is grace in Jesus for this because the seven churches didn't quite get it. And all throughout history, these are things that are part of the human condition that we struggle with. But Jesus comes to bring fresh light and fresh hope. So you're not alone today. And this book was meant to be written, to be read out loud. It was written for the ear, not the eye, you could say. That it's not necessarily written to flow neatly. If you've ever tried to read it while being a little bit tired, you got the blessing of peace and deep sleep, right? It was meant to be listened. So I'd love to do something a little bit different. If you're able to, would you stand to your feet? Because this would have been how this letter would have been uh, delivered. John would have gone, well, not John, he was in prison. Someone, the messenger, would have got up, and he would have read it out loud. And if you're like me, a little ADD, you might want to close your eyes, because it can help you imagine and picture. And if you're not an audible learner like myself, I'm sorry, it's going to get better from here. There will be slides that you can read. This would have been like what it would have been in the church of Ephesus, just with probably, I don't know, 51 and a half thousand more people together, right? Massive church. It says, to the church of Ephesus, write, the words of him 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know that you are enduringly patient, bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. So at this point, we probably get a couple like high fives and like, yeah, we got it. All right. Like, because if they read the next letter, it's not as good. Uh, but they're like a couple high fives, like, man, this sounds like a pretty great thing. And in verse four, it says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And John, I guess Jesus, understood the philosophical compliment sandwich. So then he says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, who obeys in this, who perseveres, who does not forsake first love. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus, we ask that you would open your word to us today, that you would reveal beyond the surface of the happenings and the goings and the comings of our life to really speak to the heart of the issue for us. We love you, Jesus. We love your word. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate it to us in Jesus' name? Amen. You guys grab your seat. So first, if you've been around any period of time or done any study, Ephesus was a pretty big deal when it comes to churches. Um, it was a major financial city. It was the most significant seaport on the west coast of Asia Minor. Uh, it was the center of worship for idols, tons of different gods. The primary one being the goddess of Artemis, or the Greeks would call it Diana. If you've read through Acts, this is where... Uh, the, the gospel begins to turn not only the religious scene upside down, but that affected the financial stability of the city and people's well-beings. Paul almost gets thrown out of the city. Uh, this is governed by a corrupt empire. This, this the church was one of the most significant churches in this time. It grew despite persecution, despite terrible government, despite perversion of different uh, worships. That Not only was the worship of Diana key and primary, the, the base of this temple was two football fields wide, but what you did to worship this goddess was incredible sexual perversion in ways that they like were creative with how to sin. It was a city that you would not think an outbreaking of the Holy Spirit, outbreaking of the church was ready for. And in the center of business, politics, religious pluralism emerged one of the most influential churches in the history of Christianity. 
we see that Paul planted this church, and then he leaves the first time, and he entrusts the leadership to Priscilla and Aquila, and they lead the church until Paul's second coming, and this is where he gets kicked out of town, and then he leaves Timothy, and Timothy takes the charge to pastor this church, and, and tradition tells us that Timothy was then martyred, and he would have passed the leadership of this church, would have fallen on John before he was sent to the island as we looked at last week. And Jesus, when he's writing to the churches, you'll notice as we go throughout this, he reveals a certain aspect of himself to the church that draws back to the beginning revelation. And the particular aspect of how he reveals himself is needed for the message that's going to be delivered to that church. So let's look at what he does to the Ephesians. It says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. We see that Christ is revealed as the one who is in control. And he reiterates the vision, but he makes it stronger. In chapter 1, he says he has the stars. In chapter 2, he says he holds the stars. It's active. Chapter 1, it says he stands amongst the seven lampstands, the churches. In chapter 2, he says he is now walking. Jesus reveals himself as the one with the power and the authority to walk amongst the churches, to examine, to look for certain things. Jesus, as a gardener, as he refers to himself in other times in Scripture, is looking at the tree. He's looking to prune. He's looking for the thing that he desires to see produced in his church. And the question is, what does Jesus hope to find? He's examining this church, and it starts with the commendations says, I know your works, your patient endurance, you can't bear for those who are evil. As Pastor Craig said last week, Jesus is active, he's close, he's not far off. Jesus is aware of what the Ephesians are doing. This is an incredible church. If this was today, pastors from all over the world would be flying in, traveling, be like, oh my goodness, what are they doing? Where's the 78 laws and principles that they follow to make sure you have healthy churches? They would have been doing children's ministry conferences, youth ministry conferences, how to reach the poor, how to, how to stand firm, and man, orthodoxy. They would have had the Bible college that you wanted to go to. They held strong in their orthodoxy. They protected the teaching of the gospel like no other church did. This is a church that you stand and be like, God, you're faithful. It seems like there's fruit happening. It is, it is buzzing with spiritual activity. People that really desire to do the right things to the best of their ability, what they've heard that God calls them to do, they're trying to do it. They guarded faithfully the teaching of the gospel as Paul commanded them to and to Timothy. What a church. See, Jesus' words of commendation leave us wondering if anything could be wrong with this church. John Stott summarizes the condition of the church. Energetic in their service, patient in their suffering. Man, when they're persecuted, they don't, they don't flake. They don't leave. They really trust that Jesus is who he says he was. They stick to the teaching of the word. They, they bear up on their patient in suffering. They're orthodox in their faith. They're, they, they're strict to it. They understand that, man, the word of God and the message of the gospel, that's what I'm called to live by. What could possibly be wrong with the church? Yet the Lord looks as the one who has the authority with the piercing eyes of fire that we read about. And he discovers a great flaw. And after the commendation, we see that it moves down to the correction that Jesus brings to the church of Ephesus. But I have this against you. You've abandoned 
the love that you had at first. But I have this against you, says Jesus. You have left your first love. He who holds the angels in his right hand walks amongst the churches. He knows the real condition of our souls. And he sees through all our activity, all our patience, and all of our orthodoxy. And he tells the church that it is flawed at the center. The church has everything except the one thing that Jesus deserves. I have this against you. You've left your first love. If I'm honest, maybe you're like me. Reading through this, I've heard this many times. And I've read this, like, oh, you're doing all these things, but hey, you've left your first love. And, and I've almost taken it as, like, the little warning labels that you don't really, like, hey, always wear eye gear when you're running a chainsaw. You're like, yeah, I can just do this. It's fine. Right? It's like, yeah, that'd probably be good, and I, I, I know i got to be aware of it. And, and, and rather than maybe follow it, i just got to be cautious of it. I, I know I can't get so busy because then I'll burn out. And, and so, you know, I'll try and take a day off once in a while. Or I look at it like, oh, you're first. Oh, like, i, I got to get back to reading my Bible. I, and, and I take this, and I've read this before, like, yeah, I know that's something i just got to be aware of. i got to make sure the tank doesn't get too low because then it becomes a problem, right? But, but it, you know, we're doing all the things. You know, I, I, I know I should, I, I should really be leaning my relationship with Jesus, but we, I'm serving at summer party. I'm serving at youth camp, HYC. We got, I'm out, God, I'm giving. I got two pearl bags. I got two children, one youth and three per, pearl hope bags and a church in Thailand. Like, come on, I'm doing pretty good, right? Like, I'm doing all this. I'm serving. I'm on the coffee team. I, I'm doing this. I'm not as bad as I used to be. And man, I can't tell you how many times I've looked back and in conversations where God's trying to get my attention, I'm like, ah, I know, I know, I know, but hey, it's not as bad as it was, right? It's like when I asked Zoe to clean up and she's like, well, I put this one block away. I'm like, but the 78 others is what I was actually talking about. I'm really grateful that you did something. And I think if you've grown up in church, our familiarity with this idea, this statement of, oh, you've left your first love, the familiarity with hearing it could rob us of the power that Jesus is intending to bring. But as we continue reading, Jesus doesn't just see this as a weakness. He sees this as sin. Yes, sin. Not, ah, I got to get better at it. Sin. The sin that cost him his life. The sin that separates us from relationship with God. The sin that destroys your soul. Sin. A lot differently than I would see it. And the warning that comes says, if not, if you don't understand that this is significant, if you cannot identify where in your life you have left your first love in relationship with Jesus and you don't repent and go do the things you did at first, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. Jesus, that, again, what he's saying is Ephesus. You are the epicenter of Christianity. You are incredibly effective. You are just a bustling church. But if you don't get this right, I'm going to come and remove all of your influence. Because Jesus will not settle for spiritual activity void of relational intimacy. Because in all of our doings, we'll start to do what God's called us to do the way we would do it rather than the way he has called us to. Because we have a list, laundry list of to-dos, but we've yet to sit and commune with the one who gave us that list. 
You can do the right thing, but you can do it the wrong way. And Jesus holds this not lightly. But Jesus, the gospel's being taught, widows are being looked out for, people are being fed, we're planting churches, we're, we're, we're the perversion of, of cultures being held back. Like, seriously? So I don't do devotions, maybe when I should, but like, these are, I'm just, maybe you're just way more holy than I am. But when I think about this, I'm like, okay, like, how? And, and the doer in me is like, great, well, we all can't be Mary's, Jesus. You know, spoken like a true Martha. For those who don't know the story, there's one sister that just wants to do everything. One sister's like, Jesus, I just want to sit at your feet. This is fantastic. But when it comes to the pressures, when it comes to what's going on, we, if we're not careful, can one step at a time begin to walk away from, can begin to leave what Jesus calls this first love. So I want to briefly look at what is he talking about, this first love. I think we kind of get it, and we can kind of understand it a little bit, but I want to paint a clear picture. This speaks to the love that two people have at first, that moment that causes them to like fall deeply. And consequently, because of that love, it's not just feelings, not just words, it leads to actions that you do, things that you would never have done. Because there's this deep emotion, there's this deep connection, whether it's a friendship that you're planning vacations together, you're doing this, or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or your child, like whatever it is, there's this deep connection, there's this love, this first love that causes you, as culture would say, to fall in, right? This speaks to the love that Jesus has for us, the love that we had for Jesus when he first broke through for us. And rescued our soul. When we realized our sin deserved us death and separation from Jesus, but God being rich in mercy with which he loved us, Jesus gave us a second chance. Jesus loved me despite my sin, not just at the moment of salvation, but many decades later when I'm still screwing up, when I'm still making mistakes, his love is still that good. It's remembering this incredible grace and love. So quickly we can move past this. Jesus says, for that all of their hard work, patient endurance, and orthodoxy, the Ephesians were no longer in love with him. Affection and intimacy were gone. Can I speak just to the guys in the room? And some of you are even just uncomfortable with that word, like intimacy or like vulnerability. You're like, ah, I'm good. I'll build a house. I'll do what I need to. It's principles. But it it's funny, some of the guys that are like, oh, it's principles, don't, don't talk about that. When I go back and ask about, like, your engagement story, if you're married, you're a little bit more gushy than you'd like to admit. Let's be honest. Some of you tried your hand at poetry when you never should have <laughs> and should never, ever be seen again. But there was something inside of you that caused you to do erratic, irrational, maybe embarrassing things because there was a passion that was inside of you. It might not be culturally normal for guys to talk about intimacy, to enter into vulnerable conversations, but can I tell you it's kingdom. And you don't have to be that thing that you fear you need to be, but the Holy Spirit can lead you into a place where you have a deep communion, a deep connection with the Lord that fulfills you more than anything this world could ever offer you. They were no longer in love. And this analogy that's all throughout the Bible between a bride 
and a husband, that God of the Old Testament, he took Israel as his bride and he rescued her and he paid for her and he brought her out of, out of Egypt and, and he did all these things, but then she constantly kept flirting with other things, flirting with other things, that, that she began to flirt with other loves and soon is more in love with materialism, with comfort, with control, with it entertainment, financial security, living security, these gods that provide crops and these, oh, that person says their God helps with fertility and they begin to flirt and became more in love with these gods made by hand than the God that made them. And we sit and we wonder, how could anyone do that? I can tell you, because when you worship a God made by hands, you're in control. And you may not bow down to an idol of Baal today, but I tell you, bow down to things every single day that if you think, if I do this to that, it'll provide me this. And we get control for the fear and the things in the life that we seek to control. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to his church, not just Israel, but then he takes his church and he pays his blood. He, he pays the price and he brings them back. And it's this intimate relationship that's meant to be between the husband, the bride, and the groom. And the book of Revelation, it leads all the way to the end. It builds up to the revealing of the bride of the Lamb. This beautiful feast where Jesus will finally take his perfect, spotless bride in Revelations 19. See, it's this relationship that sometimes it can be hard for us to understand the correlation when it comes to Jesus. Because the lines of spiritual activity and spiritual intimacy can get blurred sometimes. It's the same thing. It's like, oh, I, I just say I love my wife, but if I never spend time with her, I never do anything with her, if I never spend, ask her questions, if I never put an effort to get to know her, like, I, I pay the bills, I go to work and try and take out the garbage and try and help clean up the house, and I'm doing the things if there's no connection just because it's in word. And I think what Jesus is trying to get to, it's not simply to the church of Ephesus, if you do too much spiritual activity without intimacy, that's wrong. He's saying if you were only a Christian also in word, but not in deed of intimacy, that's also wrong. Jesus isn't pointing the picture saying you're too busy. He's pointing the picture saying you've got things reversed. They've got things out of order. You've walked away. You've went to things that are easy rather than being dependent on relationship where you're not in control. You'd rather do deeds which you are in control of. It's the guy who mustered up all the riz that he could with his new shoes and, and, and shirt. And if you're over 30, you don't know what riz is, all good. Lord bless you. And he got his game on. You know, he's trying to get the lines figured out. And he does his hair and he fills up his Datsun. He's on the way to the date, right? He's pulling out all the stops. Someone who says, I don't have any money for that bill or I can't afford this, all of a sudden has money for roses and, and all of these things. There's a love in a guy when he's trying to convince and sometimes trick a woman into marrying and settling for him that he gets incredibly creative. I'm telling you, one time I left for five days in college and I had a letter written for Katie for every day that I was gone. And I'm, again, I did the stupid poetry thing. I didn't have chat GPT to help me. I just had terrible spelling and writing. And if I didn't know how to spell a word, I just wrote really messy so she couldn't tell. And I'm doing this and I'm calling all my friends and I'm like, hey, on day two, can you do this on day three? And they must have been like, bro, you're gone for five days. 
you're just dating. I didn't care how stupid they thought I was. I'm getting roses. And I talked to one friend, like, that's lame. I'm like, you're no longer my friend. Get out of here. You're not helping me with this. And so I go to people that were like, oh, gushy romantics like me. And I'm doing all this stuff. And, and I look back on it. I'm like, well, it worked. But, uh, like, it, there was no limit. I remember being creatively thinking out my schedule, ways that I could get five minutes with Katie. No purpose. Just to be with her. I remember, okay, I figured this. I didn't have a car. She had a car because mine broke in half because I took it four-wheeling when I shouldn't have. And, and her parents lived about 30, 20 minutes away. And I, I'm calling in every favor for someone to borrow a car. I'm like, hey, bro, come here. Hey, remember two years ago when you were in a hard time and I sat and I counseled you? Can I have your car? I know you got to go to work, but can you take the bus so that I can take your car? Because Katie's going to be home for 15 minutes before she's got to leave. And I just, I'd really like to be there. Right? Talk about relationships that are being used. Everyone around me felt that. Or it's the girl that's obsessed with what to wear and, oh, I'm going to get to be with him and what do we need to do and, and agonizing over getting ready and you're practicing your fake laugh like, oh, <laughs> you're so funny. <laughs> right? Like you're doing it in the mirror like, oh, it's too much. He's going to know that's fake. And man, Katie thought I was hilarious when we were dating. She was just real. Never mind. And... <laughs> But you're like, you're doing the right thing. And all of a sudden, she's researching hunting and hockey. And she's like, so they put, they got the field goal in the goal. I'm like, oh, you tried. That's cute. But like, she's trying to like, she's researching because there was an affection. She was doing whatever it took. She was willing to learn. She was willing to laugh at stupid jokes. She was willing to go to restaurants that only serve burgers and fries. Like, she was willing to do whatever it took. She was willing to let me drive her car so that I felt secure in my masculinity. Right? All actually... She didn't for a while. She made me. She goes, no, it's my car. You sit in the passenger seat. It was good. Good for my heart. But you see, there was this, this idea that I was going to do whatever it took, this first love, that there's no schedule, there's no price, there's no relationship, there is nothing that I'm unwilling to do, not to do something for her, just to be with her. Well, what are we going to do? It doesn't matter. My goodness, we went for walks. I hate walks. Where are we going? Now that I want to go for a walk, where? Just around. Why? We can sit. Like, it's just like, are we going hunting? Are we going fishing? Are we going to the store? Like, what's the destination? Man, there's a time where it's, oh, I'll walk up the, we had this sprindly, Deanna knows it, the Butte, up at the Butte. Actually, Matt and Deanna at the back, they used to, they went up to the Butte when he came to visit. You know what I'm saying? Um, so we don't know. Anyways. There was this long, spirally road that went all the way up, and it was about a kilometer and a half, and it was steep, and I can't tell you how many times I walked up that stupid hill just to get time with Katie. Thought about each other, planned how we could find more time to be together, couldn't wait to spend just time. A few years down the road, in many relationships, we fall into this trap of just going through maybe the motions of relationship, but closeness, intimacy, the giddiness just to be together, we start doing the things that, that are fruit of that. But then we, we neglect the thing that's meant to be the core of that. Does that make sense? And Jesus will not settle for a church that just goes through the motions, doing the right things. Jesus didn't die that we might work for him. And he will settle for nothing less than your whole heart's affection, friends. Where have you left your first love? 
And I want to very quickly, it's just going to be on the screen. You can take a screenshot. I'm going to reference the book, another one. Uh, it's called With, W-I-T-H, by Sky Jathani. And he explores this topic and this idea of our relationship with God. Because oftentimes when we have right living with God, it's because we've bought into an untruth or a lie about who God is. Somewhere along the lines, whether it's hurt, whether it's disappointment, whether it's bad theology, whether it's busyness, has eclipsed our clear view of Jesus, which again, why is John saying you need a clear picture of who he is? Because when we miss who Jesus is, we live weirdly. Or we live according to an untruth or a half-truth. And he goes through these four relationships to God that I think many of us, anyone in this room would fall under at least one, if not two, of these categories. When we walk away from first love, when we get distracted, again, whether it's hurt, whether it's busyness, whether it's intentionally, whether it's not, John is writing to a church that for all intents and purposes, from outside, everything we can read about them, desired to follow Jesus. They weren't deconstructing. There wasn't, like, he's speaking to people that are like, man, I really want to follow Jesus. And the first one is we can fall into this, this idea of life under God. And life under God is what would have been for many different religions is that there is this mystical, powerful, spiritual being. And if I just do what he asks me to, then he has to give me what I need to. This is what Israel slipped into a lot. This is why they would worship other gods because if it's a bad year of crops, well, I guess i got to sacrifice two donkeys and this because if I do this, then you will do that. And in our life under God, we view our relationship with God and we try to manipulate God through obedience to secure the blessings we desire and avoid the calamity that we don't. I won't show hands, a show of hands, but how many of us have tithed under God? Well, it wasn't out of deep adoration, wasn't out of worship. It was like, oh, I guess I've heard that if I tithe, God will protect my 90%, so I don't want to go bankrupt, so I'll just tithe. And, and all four of these, might I say, there's scriptural groundings for them, some support, but when you go to the extreme as we tend to, it ends itself in error. I know that I struggle with life under God. If I just do all the things he wants me to, then everything's going to go right. Because it's easier to show up to church, to serve when you're asked, and to read your Bible than it is to sit in silence and wait for the voice that created the universe to speak to you. Because I know how to serve easy. I know how to read, kind of, read. <laughs> I know how to do the things for God. But I'm out of control. I'm not in the driver's seat when I sit and I wait for him. Life under God. Or we have life over God. This kind of started at the enlightenment of Newton realizing that there's natural laws and principles in the world. This uses him as a source of principles and laws. And we go to the Bible and we study. And we hear the 78 laws for this, for this. And we understand that if God is the watchmaker, that he created the world to work. And so there's principles to which God set out. That if we live by the principles, we get the blessing. And so God is the God who twisted up the watch and just left it. And it's our job to be studious enough, enlightened enough to understand the teachings of the gospel, but we miss the person of the gospel. And then we take the principles and we leave the relationships. We say, if I just live, if, I, if I'm a husband this way, I'll have a good marriage. If I lead this way, I'll have a good church. If I'm this worker, I'll have a good business. If I just do the principles. And again, there's an aspect of truth to that. 
But you are not called to a list of principles. You are called to an organic relationship with Jesus. The principles help when the relationship is solid, but you cannot replace intimacy with God with obeying the principles of God. And then there's, again, just if you're wondering, I'm life under God and life over God. I'm not sure how that flip-flops all the time, but that would be my downfall. Love studying the Word of God. If I could just do this, because again, it is far safer to study a text, find principles, and live according to it. Start my day and say, God, what do you want? Because when I do that, I can busy myself with Christian living with, at, with, with no possibility of disobedience. But what's scary is when you open yourself up and say, God, what do you want to say to me right now? Whatever he says, I'm now accountable to obey or disobey. I'm no longer in control. And the human condition since Genesis 3 has been striving for control. And if you attempt to control your relationships, to control your outcomes, if I just serve God this way or do this way, I don't need to talk to him. He did it in the word. I don't, I don't need that. Into, I just, if I just do it, I can appease him. If I do all the right things, that'll get rid of that other thing that he's trying to talk to me about, but I don't want to deal with. And so if I just do this, then we're good. Jesus doesn't settle it. You got life from God which uses God to supply our, our, our material desires. Jesus died to give me a second chance. He is the fuel. I was a Formula One race car ready to go. I just didn't have gas. And Jesus on the cross, he took care of the one thing that I couldn't take care of, and now he's forgiven me, given his Holy Spirit. Woo, and we're good to go. And he, he just empowers me to do whatever I want. All things are possible through Christ who strengthens me and my will. That we can live life that way, thinking God's our genie or our butler. Or you got life for God. Those that use him and his mission to gain a sense of direction and purpose. I think this can sometimes be those that struggle so much with, oh, what has God called me? I, I got to know what God's called me to. Because if I can figure out what God has called me to and I do it, then I'll be fulfilled. And we think the fulfillment, the purpose, the hope, the joy, the lacking that we have in our soul is, only, is found in accomplishing a call rather than a relationship with a person. Again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's seeking to control things. Life under, over, from, or for God seeks to use God to achieve some other goal. God is seen as a means to an end. But life with God is different. Because it's not to use God. Its goal is God. He ceases to be a device we employ or a commodity we consume. Instead, God himself becomes the focus of our desire. We hope you enjoyed this message from Horizon Church. To find your next step, visit horizonfam.ca. Have a great week.